Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Good. Well, this side is doing good. Didn't hear much from here and heard one or two people over there. No, in all seriousness, welcome to the Church of Woodbine. If I've not met you, my name is Doug Jones. I'm the campus and teaching pastor, and I want to invite you all to pray with me. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this awesome day. There is no one like you. You are holy and good and perfect. You are righteous. You call us to live by faith. Lord, we thank you so much for Christmas, for this Advent season, a time of preparation. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts. Open our ears to hear your voice as we dive into this passage that was written almost 2,700 years ago. May it come alive to us. May we encounter you, Jesus, the living word, as we study, meditate, And think upon your written word, Father. Lord, give me your words to say only what you want, nothing else. And may you be glorified in everything that we say and do today. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. I've got a question for everyone. Who here does not worry or struggle with anxiety? Raise your hand. If you do not struggle with worry, raise your hand. Hmm. Very good. At least there's no liars in here. Very good. Another question. Does anyone know what is the most underlined verse in all of Scripture? Anybody have an idea? I'll go ahead and tell you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Let's stand. We're going to look at this word. Let's stand up again. Get a little exercise. We got to burn some of that Thanksgiving food off. This is what Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says. It's, Do not worry about anything, about what? Anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests, not just requests, but requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds In Christ Jesus. All right, you may be seated. Chris, could you go back to verse six? This is the most underlined passage in all of scripture. Why? Because we worry all the time. Quick little story, and I could pick a gazillion stories from my life. Growing up, as many of you know, I played sports. And up until high school, I played football, basketball, baseball, ran track, golf, tried tennis, hated swimming. But anything that had a ball that would bounce, I would play. And I can still remember, and I was eight years old. My mom was driving me to a soccer match that we had, a soccer game. And I was so worked up in the front seat of our big old hoopty van that I could hardly stand up. I was so nervous, and I wanted to get there 30 minutes early. And my mom threatened me, I'm going to pull over, and we will get there 10 minutes late to that game if you don't calm down. This past summer, my family and I went to Cedar Point, and I can't tell you which of my three kids was it because I forgot to tell this child of mine that I was going to share this story. But we went to Cedar Point. It's up right on Lake Erie in Ohio to ride roller coasters. And one of my three children, they're not in the room right now, got so anxious and so nervous. I'm not going to tell you which of my three it was. Got so anxious and nervous, we were getting ready to get on the Magnum Force. 
that he got a migraine headache. Or maybe she got a migraine headache. And we had to take my child to the infirmary where they laid down for about five hours until the migraine got over. And then I forced my child back on the roller coasters. He survived. He's still here. But little did I tell the rest of my family that I was just as juiced up as he was with nerves and anxiety on riding these roller coasters. None of you raised your hand when I asked, who here does not struggle with worry and anxiety? We all do. We worry about everything. Some of the things we worry about are truly legit. Relationships, finances, our parents, our children, our grandparents, our great-grandchildren, the future, work, interpersonal relationships, maybe at work or with friends, inflation, payments, bills, our boss, our coworkers, our employees, our teachers, our students. We all struggle with worry and fear. Why? Why do we do it? We started, we're starting a new series today in Advent. Today is Jesus is our peace. And over the next couple Sundays, Jesus is our life. He's our hope. He's our message. Jesus is our king. But Jesus is our peace. Now we saw this promise here in Philippians. You know, do not be anxious about anything. You know, right, Paul? Sure. But in everything, present your requests, your petitions to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God will guard your hearts. Man, I wish that was true in my life 100%. I wish it was true in my life 10% of the time. But Jesus, one of his names is Prince of Peace. And right here in Isaiah, open your Bibles if you got it. Isaiah chapter 11. And Vera, thank you so much for reading. Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1 through 10. And there's a lot here. To give you a little bit of background of Isaiah, and if you can't find Isaiah, it's literally like in the middle of your Bible, so you can open it up. And it's one of the big prophets, which means it's the biggest book of the prophets written. Isaiah is my favorite prophet. He lived about 700 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah, this book here, when you read it, I mean, it's poetry, hyperbole, it's prophetic form. There's so much in here. It's like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And if we don't understand the context of when Isaiah lived, we're really going to miss his message. But Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel. And what I mean by that is you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four gospels written about who Jesus was in the New Testament. Isaiah is quoted more than any other book in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Isaiah has some of the big, say big, big, like massive, expansive, prophetic prophecies of the Messiah. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. That comes from Isaiah. The servant passage, my servant. Or in Isaiah chapter 53, we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That comes from Isaiah 53. 
For unto us a child shall be Yeah, a lot of you guys know that one. That comes from Isaiah. And then this one right here, Isaiah chapter 11, the very first verse. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. The largest, biggest, my most best favorite, that's Forrest Gump English right there. Horrible English. If you're learning English, don't take it from me because they didn't learn me good in school, okay? One of my favorite passages is this one right here, chapter 11. But I want to break down a little bit what was happening in the time and life of Isaiah. Kind of like Habakkuk or Habakkuk, if you speak Spanish. Israel had been a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom never once had a righteous, good, godly king. The southern kingdom, Judah, every once in a while... Periodically, they would have a king that loved the Lord, that followed the Lord, that obeyed him. And it says in scripture in numerous places, and I had to farkle to myself with it, which verse did I want to choose today out of the Old Testament that God continually told Israel about the prophets. And I landed on this one, Jeremiah 35, 15. It'll be on the screen. Jeremiah 35, 15. What is the role of a prophet Why did God send prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament to his people? What was the reason? Well, this is what Jeremiah the prophet said. But it says it throughout the Old Testament. And God, through Jeremiah, says this. Time and time again, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, proclaiming. What was he proclaiming? Turn each. I lost my place. Turn each one from his evil way and correct your actions. Stop following other gods to serve them. Live in the land that I gave you and your ancestors, but you did not pay attention or obey me. All throughout the Old Testament, God sent prophet after prophet to encourage, exhort the people of Israel, his covenant people to repent and to turn away. Unfortunately, too many of us, especially if we grew up in churchianity in the church, we view the prophets as these old, weird, angry men that wore camel's hair, that had huge beards and huge hair, and they were angry. Turn, repent, or you'll pay. But there are numerous passages apart from this one where God said through the prophets, day in and day night, day and day, day in and day out. I stood there with my arms wide open calling you to turn and to repent, to come back to me. But you refused. You see, our God, he's a holy, just God, and he does punish wickedness, and he will. He sees all things, and no one, no one can outmaneuver him or manipulate God. Everything we do, it's going to be put to the light. And it's a dire thing to be in the hands and in standing in the presence of a jealous God because as the author of Hebrews says, he's an all-consuming fire. And we should tremble before him. It's the real deal. With his love, I mean, with his righteousness and his holiness, he's also love. And more than anything, we sang it earlier, God so longs and desires us to be restored and reconciled back to him. And he doesn't do it through shame and manipulation. 
He does it through his love and compassion and his mercy and truth. And while today is today, while we have breath, oh, may we repent and turn from our evil ways and worship at the feet of Jesus for his mercy and grace. But woe to the one who hardens his heart and refuses to turn to the Lord. They will suffer for eternity. And so with the prophets, God sent prophet after prophet to Israel to call them back to himself because God longs for reconciliation and relationship. So Assyria, Assyria, say Assyria. Assyria was the international power during the time of Isaiah. And Assyria and Egypt were fighting each other. And Assyria was growing in influence and power. And Assyria was wanting to take over all of Israel and Judah all the way down into Egypt. You see, Israel is just a tiny little country. It's like the size of New Hampshire or Vermont. It's a really small country. But it was the bridge between Africa and Asia and Europe. So everybody wanted that property. And Assyria was a horrific, evil, wicked international power. And much like what Habakkuk was going through, much like what Habakkuk was going through, Isaiah and his people were going through the same thing. And Assyria was going to come in, and Assyria did wipe out the northern kingdom, Israel. They took them out completely, and they oppressed Judah greatly. We talk about worry. We talk about fear. We talk about anxiety. All of us have been going through inflation the past year and a half. It's horrible. I went to Chick-fil-A the other day. Sorry, Chick-fil-A. But I was like, first time in forever. I was like, wow. We know what it's like with the stresses and fears and concerns that we have economically. We see wars and famines, nation against nation. And I don't say this to lighten what we're going through, but we're not living in the time of Isaiah where they had a true threat of being completely destroyed and wiped out in the oppression and the wickedness. And in chapter 10 of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that God would destroy Assyria for their own wickedness. He would wipe them out as well. And many times, and it's hard to understand, God will take a wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation. He did it all throughout Israel's history. And sometimes that doesn't make sense. But at the very end of chapter 10, God talks about destroying the forest of Lebanon and cutting it down and burning up the thicket and the forest completely. And for Isaiah and his people back in his day, Lebanon, which was a country just north of Israel, had these huge cypress trees. Some of them are still alive today, but they've almost been completely destroyed. So in Isaiah's vision, it's talking about a thicket, a forest being completely cut down and burned. Nothing. I was in Colorado last week, and my brother showed me pictures of these huge forests that were burned up last year from the fires in Colorado. My brother showed me where thousands of trees have been eaten up by that beetle bug that has ravaged the West over the past 20 years. And he would show me just these, these hills, these mountains where there used to be pine trees and forests and nothing. Gone. 
And that's the imagery that God is talking to Isaiah about in right here in, ch- in verse 1 of chapter 11. And let's stand again. I'm going to read some of this. There are three main points I want to get to you. Three main points. Say three. Three. And if you ate a couple pieces of pumpkin pie last week, let's stand and sit a lot today. There's three things. And Chris, if you put those three points up, the first one is this, the promised Messiah. That's the first thing we'll look at today. The second one is this, reconciliation and restoration. And we're going to look at a couple of verses that might seem kind of weird to us, but reconciliation and restoration. And the third one is this, how the nations respond to the Messiah. Those are the three things we're going to look at. Here's the first one, the promised Messiah. It's verse 1 through 5. Look at what Isaiah says. This is Holy Spirit inspiration. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute judgment by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with the scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. You may be seated. The very first thing is the promised Messiah. And if you've read the Gospels, you might be thinking, wow, th- yeah, Jesus quoted this in one of, the, one of the synagogues. Actually, no, Jesus quoted another passage later on in Isaiah, but it says the same thing. But remember, God in chapter 10, he's telling Isaiah, look, Assyria and Lebanon will be wiped out. That forest will be gone spiritually and literally. But then what does he say? Then a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Okay, who is Jesse? It's not Uncle Jesse from the Dukes of Hazard. okay? Jesse is the name of King David's father. And Isaiah and the people of Israel have suffered for centuries of evil, wicked Davidic kings. Many of David's descendants were not godly kings at all. And it had gotten so corrupt and so unjust that God was going to pour his wrath out upon Israel and upon Judah. But see, there's always new beginnings with our heavenly father. His longing is for reconciliation, restoration, renewal, revival, and redemption. And God is encouraging the people of Israel through Isaiah. He goes, we're going back to the very beginning that a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse, a branch And it will bear fruit. Do you know what the largest, and sorry, I'm going to use some Colorado imagery here because I was just in Colorado. What is the largest tree that exists? It's the aspen tree because it is one tree. You will see a whole mountainside of aspen trees. It is one tree because they share the same root system. And even though the forest gets cut down and gets destroyed, Even though the Davidic kings, the the generations following King David are evil and wicked and Israel is about ready to implode. God prophesies through Isaiah, but through the stump of Jesse, a shoot will sprout up, a branch will grow. It looks like they're wiped out, but no, another is coming and he will bear fruit. And then it describes Jesus right here. 
700 years before Jesus lived, this was proclaimed. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And when Jesus started his ministry and was baptized by John the Baptist, who descended upon Jesus? The Holy Spirit like a dove. After Jesus got back from the wilderness from being tempted for 40 days and after having fasted for 40 days, he goes into the synagogue. And the very first thing he reads is from Isaiah 61, which is just like this passage here. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. And it's anointed me to preach good news right here. The spirit of the Lord is on him, will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. Our country, our world is longing for godly, wise leaders. And unfortunately, there hardly is any. There ain't none. Where are the godly, righteous, wise leaders? In Isaiah's day, there weren't any. And yet God is speaking through Isaiah. Oh, there's there's one is coming. And he is full of Holy Spirit. In fact, the Spirit rests upon him. And he's full of wisdom and understanding and counsel and knowledge and fear of the Lord. And this fear of the Lord, it's not this scared like some little five-year-old who's getting ready to get spanked by his mom or dad. But it is this awe and this reverence. And when you read the life of Jesus, what did Jesus say to everyone? I came to do my father's will. I came to bring glory to my father. Why? Because Jesus feared his father in the sense of he humbled himself as the eternal son of the father. He humbled himself to do his father's will. Now I'm trying to explain a little bit the mystery of the Trinity and doing a horrible job at it. But don't worry, when you get to heaven, you'll finally say the most popular word in heaven. Oh, I get it. Jesus longed to obey his father. And he humbled himself before his father in every way. Not just as the eternal son, but also as a human, as a man. And it continues to describe Jesus right here. He's a shoot. He's a branch. He will bear fruit. It also says that he will judge righteously and execute justice. How many of us have been falsely accused? How many of us have seen injustices happen? And we ask, where's the justice? We've seen children suffer. And we're like, where is the justice? Well, Jesus will judge and he will make all things right. And no one will walk away from judgment day feeling like they got the raw end of the deal. He will judge perfectly with righteousness and truth. Right here in verse five, it says that righteousness will be a belt around his hips and faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Well, which one is it? Is it the belt of faithfulness or is it the belt of righteousness? Well, technically, the word for belt for faithfulness is like a girdle that protects all the important parts of the body. And Jesus, the very foundation of who Jesus is, is righteousness and faithfulness. I played basketball growing up, and when they taught us how to play defense, they told us, don't look at the basketball, don't look at the person's face, you look right here at their navel. Because wherever their belly button is going, that's where they are going. Why? Because this is the epicenter of who we are. The word compassion in the Greek, 
when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus, and it says when he saw the crowds, he was filled with compassion. The Greek word is his intestines. Because back during Jesus' time, the idea and thought was that your emotions came from your gut. I can tell you, riding those roller coasters with my middle son, I felt a whole lot right here. And it felt like it was coming up and going to come out. Jesus judges with righteousness and faithfulness and truth. We can trust him. He's not only worthy of our trust, but he's faithful to hold us in his hands. The second point is this, reconciliation and restoration. Let's stand again. We'll go quick. Burn these calories. Come on. Here we go. Starting in verse 6, 6 through 9. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the young lion and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into the snake's den. Did someone laugh? That was awesome. They will not harm or destroy each other. On my entire holy mountain, for the land will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Okay, you may be seated. Excuse me. This part of the passage has a very strong Garden of Eden imagery. The lion and the lamb, the cow and the bear, the leopard and the goat, and a little child will lead them. I I spent way too much time trying to find some really cool pictures of this. And some were kind of cheesy and corny. You know, I found one, one of the ones I wanted to show up there. And I thought, man, isn't that cute and sweet? Or maybe that's a fawn lollipop that he's getting ready to. And I just wasted way too much time. But could you imagine if that was really true? There's one I found of like this tiny little lamb and this huge lion behind it. And I thought, man, I bet you that lamb could skip down any type of place on the Sahara Desert or wherever in the Inget. And I mean, he wouldn't have to fear a thing. Because if his boss, if his jefe, if his protector is that huge lion, no one's going to mess with him. Christy, you mind putting the picture up with the lion with the two goats? This Garden of Eden imagery right here. Okay, what does this mean? Like, was Isaiah drunk? Was he smoking pot or weed? Like... What's going on here with this? Well, lions consume goats and lambs. Leopards eat gazelles. Cows are the hunted. So are sheep. And yet it says a lion will eat grass, graze like cattle. These are animals in the animal kingdom that are at enmity with each other. And yet when Jesus returns, he'll bring complete restoration and reconciliation. You know, there's a passage, and we know it really well because it comes from Luke chapter 2. When, the, when Jesus was born and the shepherds are out in the fields and then an angel shows up, and he says, don't be afraid. You know, I bring you tidings of good news. And then a whole multitude of angels sing. And what do they sing? They sing, glory to God in the highest heaven 
and peace on earth to people he favors. And we talk a lot about, and there's tons of stories, and some of them are fake and, and real about during World War I and World War II, that the German and allied sides would have a treaty for one day. What day was that? Christmas. And there's tons of stories. One is this, and I don't know if it's true, but I'm going to share it because it's a good story. There was an allied soldier during World War II who got lost during the Battle of the Bulge. And he knew it was Christmas Eve, and he heard someone talking, coming along. And so he, he thought it sounded like an American. And so these two soldiers, they huddled up together in the snow, and it was below freezing. And they sang hymns together. They shared scripture stories together because that allied soldier was a believer, and he was lost. And when he had the, found his buddy, they were there together, and they prayed, and they thanked the Lord for their families for Christmas Day. And they kept each other warm. And that next morning, that allied soldier, when he woke up, there was a Hitler youth knife right beside him with a note from that soldier who happened to be a German Nazi soldier, but a believer as well. He could have easily killed him, but he didn't because they had a father in common. Now, is that just a good old big fish pastor story? Maybe. But see, the power of Jesus brings reconciliation and peace and restoration to those who are at war with each other. Jesus is the only one who brings true peace, first and foremost with our Heavenly Father, with God. Every human who is born is born a sinner, and Scripture is very clear. Every human who lives, who is born, is an enemy of God because we're born sinners. No one is good. Greg and Patty are getting ready to go across the ocean to see a new grandbaby daughter soon. I hope I didn't let this spill. And she is going to be one of the most precious little humans that they'll ever hold in their hands. I, that's great news. And I got some bad news for you. That little baby is going to be a wretch, is a wretch, and is in dire need of salvation through Jesus. And it's hard to believe that when you hold these precious little babies. But no human is good. No one seeks God. We're all under condemnation. And we're all in dire need to be reconciled back to our Heavenly Father. That is why we have all those global workers over there. That's why we celebrate missions. That's why we long to see people go. That's one of the reasons Johnny announced this earlier about the storytelling workshop with the Hegel starting next week. It's just four Sundays, 930 You guys can get up earlier than normal if you don't come at 9.30. But it's an incredible way to learn how to share stories, the Christmas story, with friends, family, neighbors, coworkers. I want to encourage you to come. But why? Because everyone is in dire need to be reconciled back to our Heavenly Father. And the only way, say only way, is through Jesus Christ. He is the only way that we will have true peace with our Heavenly Father. There's no other way. And I know most of you guys know that, but I don't know if we truly understand and realize that those who haven't surrendered their lives to Jesus are under harsh, eternal condemnation. And if we don't tell them who Jesus is, 
Who will? Who will? And see, this imagery right here is talking about what's going to happen when Jesus restores all things. Jesus is our peace. He is our peace between us and our Heavenly Father. And Jesus also is our peace in that through the power and presence of Jesus, we can forgive those who sin against us. We can forgive those who have offended and hurt us. And some of us have been hurt tremendously by others. Some of us have been rejected, abused, abandoned, lied to, betrayed, disappointed. And we have every right to clench our fist and desire and demand justice. But what God has called us to do is to forgive one another the way God has forgiven us through Christ. In this cute little imagery, and Chris, if you don't mind putting the lion and the lambs up there again, this is, this is awesome. I love this picture. Now, I think it's a painting. I have a hard time believing that they would get this male lion to behave himself like that. But when I look at this imagery of these two tiny little goats, these ewe lambs and this lion just looking at them, and, and the lamb is cuddled up in his arms. And I'm sitting there thinking, only Jesus could truly do that. Jesus gives us the power and strength and ability to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Through his power, through his presence, through his blood, we receive his forgiveness and we can give it away. The third thing is this, how the nations respond to Jesus. Verse 10, let's stand up again real quick. I mean, we're getting to the point now where we can get an extra slice of pie today. Verse 10, look at what verse 10 says. On that day, the root of Jesse. Now, I thought it was the shoot of Jesse. Well, Jesus is both. Jesus is the new thing. He's the shoot of Jesse. He's also the root The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. Everybody take a big breath. His resting place will be glorious. Y'all can have a seat. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. A couple things as the worship team comes forward on that day. On the day that Jesus comes back and he stands upon this earth and he restores and he makes all things, it says that he will be a banner to the nations. One of the things I love about Woodbine is the diversity. And I would love to see us get more diverse. But Jesus is a banner to the nations. The nations will look to him. You see, Jesus said this. He said this in John chapter 3. He said in the same way, John 3, 14, and this is right before that famous passage of God so loved the world. Jesus said this, in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent and the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must, must be lifted up. And Jesus is talking about his death. Jesus then goes on to say in chapter 12 of John, in John 12, 32, Jesus says, 
if I am lifted up, the Son of Man will draw all people to himself. Jesus is the Son of Man. It's a title, it's a messianic title that was given in Daniel as Lord, as judge, as ruler. And if we lift Jesus up, not only in our own hearts, in our own mind, but in our lives, in our words, if we lift Jesus up, we make a lot about Jesus and who Jesus is. He will draw people to himself. I've gotten in numerous political discussions, discussions and arguments about church and religion. And most of the time, it usually falls flat on its face. A lot of people really struggle with the church. And you know what? If the boot fits, if the shoe fits, the church is made up of people. And the church has, especially over these past couple decades, as a lot has come to light. The church has caused a lot of harm. And I'm talking about big C church, just the church. We have hurt and abused thousands of people. And as a church, we should always walk in humble repentance of that. And what I've learned is don't argue and fight and try to defend the church. Let Jesus do that because Jesus is the bridegroom. He can defend his church, but he also needs to purify his church. And he does that in his time and his way. But I've learned that when we lift up, when I lift up Jesus and point people to Jesus and talk a whole lot about Jesus, whoo, very few people can argue with Jesus. They're only left with three options. He's a liar. He's a lunatic. Or he's Lord. And as we lift up Jesus, he will draw both men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. I want to invite all of you to stand. And I've talked about it a lot today. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker, no Jesus, no peace. If you know Jesus, you'll have peace. But if you don't have Jesus, there is no peace. I have a couple questions I just want to ask. Are you experiencing the peace of Jesus today? Now we're like leaky buckets. We're called jars of clay in scripture. And there are seasons when we don't have peace. I don't. Every day I worry and fear and get full of anxiety. So what do we do with the fears and anxieties, the worries that we have? Well, I want to encourage you every day, a couple practical things. One thing is before you go to bed, share out loud with your spouse, with your roommate, if you're living by yourself, with yourself in the mirror, but share out loud 10 things that you're grateful for. I want to encourage you to sing one song of praise every day. And as you worship and lift up Jesus, let him take your burden. You can't carry it anyway. So just imagine yourself giving that burden and laying it at his feet and let him take it. If it's a financial burden, a relationship burden, future burden, a past burden, imagine yourself laying it at Jesus' feet and let his presence work inside of you. 
The second question is this. Is there anything in your life that is keeping you from experiencing Jesus' peace? Hidden sin? Unconfessed sin? Flat-out rebellion? You know what you need to do and you say no. It's hard to serve two masters. The third question, and this is for every day, all year long, but especially this time of season, is how can you be an instrument of God's peace where you work, live, and play during this Christmas season? Let us worship Him. If you want prayer, I'll be standing right down here. I'd love to pray with you. Johnny will be over at the next step section. If you've got questions about what we talked about today, about this passage, maybe about how do you put your faith in Jesus? Maybe you have a prayer request. We would love to pray with you. Let's worship him.